Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Dr. Adam Kassam, a Toronto-based physician and the past president of the Ontario Medical Association. In these roles, Adam's a regular commentator on health policy issues from the COVID-19 pandemic to healthcare financing and virtually everything in between. I'm grateful to speak to him today about the state of healthcare in Canada and what needs to be done to aspire to better health outcomes for all Canadians. Adam, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me, Sean. Let's start with a biographical question. How did you go from studying to be a physician to completing a master's in public health at Columbia? How, in other words, did you get interested and involved in health policy issues? Yeah, so it's an interesting story because I actually did my master's between my third and fourth year of medical school. I was uh, I spent 10 years in the States. I'm born and raised here in Toronto, a uh, diehard Leafs fan. And so this past season obviously was challenging, but um, as is every season. But I spent four years um, at Cornell doing my undergrad in biology and then went straight into medical school thereafter at Dartmouth. And between my third and fourth year, I actually was having a bit of crisis of confidence. I actually didn't think that I wanted to be a doctor, believe it or not, uh, sort of at the end of my uh, third year because I didn't really do very much that I found inspiring or really loved to do, frankly, clinically. And it wasn't, thankfully, as a, as a result of finding actually the specialty that I'm now in. If it hadn't been for that, I probably wouldn't be a practicing physician. But between my third and fourth year, I was still struggling with figuring out what I wanted to do, which is what led me to thinking about taking some time recalibrating my uh, my vision for for the future, and and really led me to, to a public health policy degree at uh, at Columbia, and it was a, it was a great opportunity because at that time, this was around the 2011-12 era, the Affordable Care Act was kind of making its way through Congress in the United States, and sort of it was gripping the you know our our world at least in medicine down in the, uh, in the United States quite substantially. So that's kind of what drew me in to begin with. Uh, sort of, how do we create laws? How do we create better ones? How do we create legislation and ultimately produce, hopefully, a better um, healthcare system as a, as a result? And so that's kind of what led to that that impetus for me, wanting to develop a bit of a, a better knowledge and understanding of that policy work. And that sort of then bled into some of the work that I've been doing over the past handful of years, which is really tackling the challenges that we have here in Canada and specifically here in Ontario. That's great, Adam. Let me pick up on some of those challenges and, and uh, the policy thinking that you've done. As OMA president, you've called for the need to, quote, future-proof healthcare systems in Canada. What does that mean? What would a future-proof system look like in broad terms? Is it more public investment or is it institutional change? Rethinking the role of public versus private or something involving all of the above? 
Yeah, I think all of the above is the right way to think about that. It's a very complex problem, Sean. And I think the reason why we're thinking about future proofing right now in, in the context of perhaps coming out of or at least through uh, this pandemic, I think that we recognize here in Canada that our capacity to deliver care at a high level at times of crises, so such as the, the pandemic, so high volumes of patients very acutely ill and doing so for a sustained period of time, perhaps across the country in very dif- different ways, uh, it, it is a challenge for, for our system. Now, I will also add, though, that no system got this perfect, right? No system around the world has been able to manage the level and severity of COVID disease and burden, I would say, consistently well throughout the past two and a half years. There hasn't been one. And so this is obviously part of the challenge. How do you deal with uh, once? How do you how do you create a system that's available to, to, to adapt in a very acute moment of crisis that maybe comes around once every hundred years? And so that's, I think, the challenge. How do you how do you do that for the future? But then also what we have now is figuring out how to get through some of the carnage and the wake of pand- uh, of the pandemic uh, in terms of backlogs, delayed care, access to certain types of services. How do we now get through all of that? That was a problem before, but now is a significantly larger problem now. Let me take you up on that precise question, Adam. As you say, a major imperative here is the pandemic-induced backlogs for surgeries and diagnostic tests. And the backlog from the pandemic builds upon pre-pandemic wait times in key areas such as knee and, and hip operations. Tell me a bit about the integrated ambulatory centers model that you've championed. How would it work and how can it help to address these significant backlogs? The OMA came up with this idea around integrated ambulatory centers, or IEC. Some people will call it community health centers, um, community surgical centers, etc. But really what it is is a, um, an independent but linked infrastructure that is able to focus on specific types of surgeries and procedures that can now be done outside of the four walls of a hospital safely, routinely, and often same day. And so when we think about uh, the gamut that this might run, it includes things like same-day hip and knee replacement surgeries. It includes certain types of endoscopies, ENT procedures. It, it'll include a lot of ophthalmologic, so cataract, retinal, uh, and other ophthalmologic procedures that are often routinely done as a same-day kind of procedure. We also have things like certain types of plastic surgery, certain types of skin cancer removal, uh, hysterectomy, certain types of gynecological procedures that can actually be done same-day and f- for folks to go home. And we actually see this model play out extremely well in other jurisdictions around the world. So namely, Western Europe, the United States, and even parts of central Canada have adopted these kind of standalone surgical and diagnostic centers that can actually have higher volume, be more efficient, achieve economies of scale, and ultimately get through what we are now seeing as a backlog that uh, stands, at least here in this province, close to 21 million total healthcare services, which uh, approximately a million or a million and a half of that is surgical and diagnostic. If I can just follow up, Adam, may I ask, what is the principal obstacle to moving in this direction? It seems pretty intuitive. It, it addresses a specific problem. Uh, you know, the, the case that it enables economies of scale is pretty compelling. Why aren't we doing it? I think that we have in our healthcare environment a challenge with the concept of ownership and profit. And this is something that our society and our communities, and frankly, our legislators need to, to better understand. And so as an organization, as the OMA, we, we, t- we take a profit agnostic view of who should be owning uh, these surgical centers or these uh, diagnostic centers. Whereas I think politically, this becomes a much more heated and, and, and charged conversation because 
and in, we're in the midst of a, a, a rip period here in Ontario where there are campaigns that are ongoing that seek to, I would say, differentiate themselves from one another based purely on this notion of profit. And I think that we have to maybe take a step back and really understand what, is, what does profit mean? Who's owning sort of uh, this infrastructure? How is it being supported? Where is the funding coming from? And it, can you have a profit versus non-for-profit? Does it, does it even matter? I mean, maybe that's a better question. Does, it, does profit even matter in the context of getting care to people if we can ensure that everyone has access, reasonable access, and is getting high-quality care with great outcomes? You mentioned the need to sort of step back and grapple with these questions as a matter of first principle. I, I think I think that's right. In that vein, you've written in favor of what you call a quote blended healthcare model. Let's just start in big picture terms. What is a blended healthcare model, and why do you th- what do you think it's preferable to? So, Sean, we actually have a blended model here in Canada. I, I think that's sort of one thing that we have to recognize already. So, for example, I'm a physiatrist, and uh, no one knows what that is, so I'm going to give you a bit of a, an education. A physiatrist is a rehabilitation doctor that takes care of folks who've had muscle, bone, or nerve injuries. So I often see patients who've had strokes or spinal cord injuries, brain injuries, catastrophic injuries, amputations, these types of injuries. And if so someone comes and sees me, either in the hospital or in a clinic, often, almost all the time, like almost at every single encounter that I'll have with the patient, I'll be recommending some sort of course of physiotherapy. Okay, whether it's resistance training, endurance training, getting sure, making sure someone is able to have the appropriate walker and be able to use that around the unit or at home, but it involves therapy. And therapy isn't really, it is not covered through our, our, our conventional OHIP system, right? We, you don't charge OHIP a, ser, a service fee for a physiotherapy encounter. And so often that physiotherapy encounter is paid for either out of pocket by a patient or a family, or it's uh, paid for through an insurance program that 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 individual might have through their work or independently. Uh, this is an example of where care is provided to a, an individual through uh, a, a different model of care uh, as opposed to a health insurance program that is funded through taxes. And so this example can be extended right across our healthcare system, occupational therapy, speech-language pathology therapy, uh, psychotherapy. We think about drug coverage. So we already have, a, in, in a sense, a blended model. And what we have to figure out as a country, and perhaps even as jurisdictions right across the country, so province by province, what do we think is a basic level of insured service that no one should have to pay for, and how much of it can we potentially continue to deliver at a high level with appropriate wait times, with appropriate access. That's the conversation. We have to define those first principles. How much of this can we actually do and do well? And how much of it do we need to then have other areas of service providers play a role? Let me uh, pick up that point. As you mentioned, Adam, our Medicare model provides 100% first dollar coverage for physician and hospital services but minimal public support for non-insured services such as drugs, dental, long-term care, and many of the others you mentioned. Does our deep yet narrow form of public insurance coverage still make sense? Should we be revisiting how we dedicate scarce public dollars to provide shallower yet perhaps broader public insurance like most other universalized healthcare systems around the world? Yeah, Sean, I think you bring up a good point, which is to say that every single high-performing healthcare system around the world has some sort of blended model, right? And when you look at the Commonwealth Fund that ranks uh, the OECD nations, 
in terms of their healthcare outcomes, and we think about the the uh, you know the the quadruple aim or the quaternary aim, we in Canada haven't been performing very very well for a very long time, and. I think it's helpful for us to look at other jurisdictions and other countries and see if we can, in fact, learn from their experiences, perhaps their pitfalls, but perhaps even some of their the ways in which they've adapted their models over the course of the past, let's say, 10 years, but even through p- p- the pandemic, perhaps. And, and what can we do better? I think we should always be striving to be better and, and deliver better care. And I think we are very much at a tipping point. We saw throughout the pandemic people just not being able to access the proper type of care at the right time. And we're seeing some of that happen right now as well as a result of uh, the pandemic backlogs. And so the question now becomes for us, what do we need to do with scarce resources that you're describing, Sean? How do we appropriately fund the important things that we need to? And then ultimately not be afraid to have tough, honest conversations with voters, with taxpayers, with citizens about what they think are the priorities. And hopefully those two things dovetail with uh, policymakers we're ultimately thinking about the future of healthcare in this country and in this province as we continue to kind of, you know, hobble uh, in, in terms of our healthcare system now and, and, and probably for the foreseeable future if we don't do anything substantial. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. As we think about reform, You've made the case that it needs to be done on an intergovernmental basis. You've, you've written, for instance, that, quote, it's naive to think that provincial governments should be trusted to improve healthcare delivery on their own. Why do you think it's important that the federal government play a greater role in the healthcare system? And how might that role manifest itself? So I think if when we take it back to the origins of Medicare back in the 50s, Tommy Douglas, Saskatchewan, everyone knows the story and everyone loves that story. Uh, we have to remember that at that time in the 50s, it was actually a hospital-based insurance program that was a 50-50 proposition between the federal government and the province. And you can imagine 70 years later, advancements in healthcare have been quite substantial. And what I mean by that is that 75% of care that's now delivered across this province here in Ontario, Sean, to patients across uh, Ontario, happen outside the four walls of a hospital. So they happen in a family doctor's office or a pediatrician's clinic. They happen at perhaps an endoscopy suite or an x-ray, an ultrasound facility. So there are so many different things that now happen outside the four walls of a hospital where the original spirit of Medicare, which was once again a partnership between the federal and provincial government, has now been eroded over time by all levels of government, by all stripes of government, where we now sit, at least in Ontario, at that shared responsibility being 22% to the federal government and close to 80% by the province. And so that mismatch, I think, is extremely challenging when provinces are starting to think about delivering care and planning for the future of care. And, you know, frankly, over the past several years, we've seen large investments in a number of different areas, including whether it's obviously the pandemic relief and CERB, and and now we're talking about national uh, national defense spending. and, and, And so there is an appetite here, at least over the past five years, to have larger spends on national interests. And I would argue that Canadian health care is one of those and should be one of those national spends that we, we focus on. In fact, 
in, in the last election campaign federally, I think the prime minister actually uh, on the hustings was actually campaigning on having every single Canadian have access to the family doctor. You know, I get that that's a political expedient way to, to talk about health care. And the feds know that this is a provincial jurisdiction. The provinces know that they want some more money from the feds to make that happen. But if we think that we're going to try and play this political hot potato after a pandemic where now people are really, really upset about not being able to have access to care that they believe that they should have access to. And frankly, they should have access to it because they've been paying through their taxes for it. I think we're at a different stage in having that conversation about who should own health care, at least at a jurisdictional level. And let's get rid of that notion and supplant it with, OK, let's try and have a team candidate approach uh, to health care. And so what that ultimately means is that the Fed's got to uh, got to pony up some more dough. In addition to additional federal dollars, which as president of OMA, you, you made the case that the goal ought to be to at least to get to 35 percent of the cost deriving from uh, federal transfers. Is there anything else that the federal government ought to be doing? Is there a case, for instance, Adam, that we need to be revisiting the Canada Health Act? Has aspects of the act become an impediment to the, some of the types of innovations that you were talking about earlier? I think that there is probably a general consensus in the medical community, but also sort of in legal and public policy circles that we do need a modernization uh, of the Canada Health Act. For example, over the past five years, but really over the past two years, we've seen now an explosion of care now delivered virtually, so virtual care. And much of this kind of new innovation, which is great, and I will tell you that virtual care and the explosion of virtual care over the past years has probably been one of the largest innovations in healthcare in a generation. And part of the reason why that was able to be taken, to, to have taken place, at least in our model, is that between the provinces and the medical associations, broadly speaking, there were negotiations that were happening and, had, and did happen in order to ensure that those services could be insured and paid for uh, through OHIP or an, an equivalent provincial health insurance plan. Again, I have, to, I have to reiterate, that is probably one of the largest innovations in a generation in terms of health, health insurance coverage uh, for the broader public uh, in, in 50 to 100 years. So we have the capacity to innovate very, very quickly and, and bring things online. But, all, but as you're describing, some of that is unfortunately hamstrung by certain aspects of the Canada Health Act, but it's also hamstrung by the lack of, of, of new legal language to enshrine some of these services in the way that they need to. In addition, when we think about integration or data, we, we think about three other areas. We talk about integration, talk about a little bit about virtual care, but we also have to talk about security and privacy. Here's an example. So about a year ago, I, I work at a, uh, at a hospital that has a shared electronic medical record system with another several hospital networks. And they were hacked. And in fact, they were hacked by some nefarious actors abroad. And what that meant was at one of the hospitals, they couldn't deliver care at all. You, could, you couldn't order Tylenol in the emergency room because it was a completely digital hospital. And so now you have a situation where these are becoming targets of you know, nefarious proxy international agents that um, are seeking to do damage not only to us, but perhaps to uh, our peer nations. And so this is a national interest, uh, sorry, national defense issue. This is a federal government issue, but it also requires partnership across the levels of, of government. And so this is where healthcare is now becoming so integrated that it needs uh, to have that kind of cooperation at a federal, provincial, and a municipal level. You've also written and talked a lot about shortages with respect to doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals. Let me just ask about doctors, Adam. 
what explains these shortages? What's wrong with the current education and residency systems? How should they change? So this is a supply and demand issue. So the first is, is that we don't we just don't have enough doctors. And so we could talk about how we just didn't plan enough early on or haven't done so over the past 120 years to really meet the demands of a, a firstly a, a, an aging population. So all the boomers that are getting older need care. We didn't really plan or haven't planned for a health human resource strategy for those folks. We're also seeing commitments by all levels of government and across all party stripes to grow our domestic um, population through immigration in order to support a growing economy, to support a growing country. And so we now have both a, a growing population, but also an aging population. And both, so both are happening at a very rapid pace. And so demand is outstripping supply first and foremost in terms of health human resources. Now, if you're in downtown Toronto on University Avenue, you might not necessarily notice that because you have a lot of different types of physicians on University Row and are very, very well-resourced environments, both ac- academically and through tertiary or quaternary hospitals. But, you know, take you know, take 30 minutes and go up the 404 and now you're in Markham or, 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 or in Aurora and, 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 and suburbs of the GTA or west out in Brampton. They don't have the same resources and they have a larger and growing population. So first and foremost, we have a shortage of, of healthcare providers, both what we would call sort of highly trained and then sort of middle trained. Second is that we unfortunately, several years ago, actually took a step back by cutting residency spots instead of adding them. I think that was quite short-sighted. And then third, we have also a mismatch of sort of region by region, meaning we might have a lot of dermatologists in downtown Toronto, but we might not have a lot of dermatologists out in Cornwall. So matching our supply and demand is going to be, I think, a very important step forward. And then finally, we have a very strange paradox here in this province of having underemployed, so underemployed surgeons and wait lists for hip and knee replacements or other types of uh, surgeries for folks who are waiting for care. And that has to do with sort of hospital infrastructure, not having enough operating rooms, not having enough operating staff or the, uh, the allied health staff to, or the nursing staff to, to, to support that kind of that scaling up. And this is, sort of comes back to where IECs and having these independent facilities may actually make a dent in those uh, types of ways. And so these are complex problems. And layered on top of all of that, Sean, is we also have a number of internationally medical, medically trained professionals in this country who can't get licenses. They, they, they can't sit for their boards. And, and it's, it's kind of hard from a bureaucratic and, and a credentialing perspective. And that's an area where I think that we can probably start, start to see some streamlining. I know that certain levels of government have made commitments to do just that. You've spoken with thousands of physicians and other healthcare professionals in your role as president of the OMA to say nothing of your, your other activities. Do you think they're open to serious reform at, at this stage? Would they put everything, including, for instance, greater private delivery on the table? I think that physicians, uh, so in my role as, as the OMA president, I, I, I had the honor of representing 43,000 doctors across the province. And I can tell you with 40, but there's a joke in medicine where you, you put five doctors in a room, Sean, and you get six opinions. So you can imagine <laughs> the multiplier effect with 43,000 people. And um, it's true. So what I mean by that is that you have such a, a diversity of voice and opinion and thought in, in our physician community and broadly speaking across the health sector. And I think that the fa- in a strange way uh, and in a profound way, the, the, the pandemic has fundamentally changed the way I think that we all look at our healthcare system and, and believe that it, it, it has an opportunity to change. And, and what that change looks like, I think, becomes or can become not only 
politically charged, but it can also become quite heated. But I do think that there is an appetite now to start thinking about what does the next 20 years look like? What does the next 40 years look like? And, and, and I think that there is, and hopefully there is a safe space to be able to do that in a way that allows for us to take the politics and the rhetoric out of that conversation and really focus in on what the real goals uh, of our healthcare system should be, which is to deliver high quality care uh, at, at the right time for the right patient in the right context. Just a final question. Listeners will hear in your thoughtful and passionate answers a kind of commitment to that long-term change and long-term vision. What are your next plans? How are you going to direct your your passion and your talents as you move out of the, the role as president of the OMA? Sean, it's a, it's a good question. I'm going to take some time this summer doing a little bit of uh, self-care, uh, spending time with our dog and my wife. Uh, my wife's a physician, and so we've been kind of going full tilt for the past two and a half years. You know, we have a, a, an election that's that's ongoing right now, and I think a lot of what the public in Ontario is really looking for is at least to, 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 to have that election happen. Let's figure out where we're at, and then we can start focusing on a future that I think is still very bright. I'm, I, you know, Sean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a glass-half-full kind of guy. I think that we've come out through the pandemic learning a lot as a system, learning a lot as a profession, and hopefully we can apply a lot of those lessons to – a system that I'm going to require that hopefully my, if I, if we have kids, my kids are going to require you and your family is going to need to be able to be high performing. So that's something that I'm still committed to. And I want to be able to contribute in any way that I can. Well, we look forward to seeing where that path takes you. Dr. Adam Kassim, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues today to, to share your, your insights and analysis. And, and thank you for your service over this extraordinary pandemic. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate being uh, invited to speak with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening. <laughs>